This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What a cracking Melbourne morning. I know. It's that special time of year when it's cool in the morning and then there's cricket in the afternoon. I am <laughs> looking just... forward to the match tonight. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Well, it's this afternoon. Don't tune in too late. Yeah, <laughs> okay. you've, got to, you've got to dedicate the whole day. Glued, glued to my TV. Yeah, yeah. I've already, I went and bought um, this woman at the um, fruit shop looked at me because I bought like two kilos of grapes because I just me give me a, a rock melon some grapes some ice cream the cricket I'm, I'm done so you're just like six great grapes and over <laughs> I like to keep count just in case, <laughs> case line them all up ring them up yeah. tweet them you know that sort of stuff you get an extra uh, one if there's a wide yeah exactly <laughs> throw a grape at the, at the TV if need be um, now but we're we, not here to talk about sport no, we, it's not a sport not. show it's not a sport show but we do have a, a big show ahead folks and uh, we are working at the moment on trying to hook up with the guest from Antarctica which may or may not work um, the internet uh, gods may shine on us and we have live outside at the moment frantically trying to get it going Don't let us um, down technology. She just jumped up and down with excitement and then shook her head left to right. So I'm not sure what that means. That could be bad. Um, but then we have a couple of other guests as well from... Um, who are joining us in the studio. in the studio, which will be very interesting. But we're going to start off with some news for you. Do you want to start, Dr. Crystal? Well, Dr. Shane, this is a science show and we know that we have lots of listeners out there who love the power of science, uh, the way it can inspire us, the way it can ignite our passions and, you know, just the genuine curiosity for unraveling the mysteries of our universe but there are some others who sit back and say well what has science ever done for me you know apart from gps and wi-fi and medicines and safe food and vaccines and um, new technology and new materials i mean really what's what's the what's the value of science well for those people though i have put their name down for the mars um, one mission (laughs) so that the one thing it can do for them is put them on another planet (laughs) (laughs) Nothing personal. And and the tagline of this show, science is everywhere. I mean, it's so true, but to the point where science is almost invisible. And Mm. how do you actually say, well, how much is science worth? Oh, yeah. And this week, the Office of the Chief Scientist and the Australian Academy of Science actually put out a study that's been done by the uh, Centre of International Economics, which tries to get a sense, which puts some numbers on the contribution of science to the Australian economy. Mm -hmm. And they actually only looked at a section of sciences. They just looked at what they call the advanced physical sciences. Right. So they looked at physics, chemistry Between and maths. maths. Yep. So they didn't look at biology, they didn't look at medical research. So let's cut all the, those kind of you know bits out and just say, well, of those sort of disciplines, physics, chemistry and maths, advanced physical sciences, how much is it worth? And the results are actually quite surprising. It's scary. Well, mm. they, they had a look at it and said, well, okay, let's have a look at all the industries in Australia. We've got, you know, 500 codes in the Australian Bureau of Statistics. How many mm-hmm. of those industries actually have some bit of them that's science important? And how much is it that? And how much is that worth? And how many jobs is that? And how much exports is that? And the numbers are enormous. I mean, you know, science underpins 11% of Australia's economy. You wow. know, that's directly, directly um, contributes to $145 billion a year. That's an extreme extraordinary figure. And that's before you even start talking about the indirect, indirect. flow-on effects because, you know, you've not just got these industries, you've got, you know, professional services mm, and communications yep. and all that stuff around it. I mean, and the industries we're talking about here are things like, you know, 
mining, banking, telecommunications, computer-aided design, even things like the pathology of diagnostic imaging. You know, if you're looking down a microscope mm. or if mm. you're, you know, capturing something on a, ca- on a sensitive camera, you're going to need a bit of science for that. Yep. And so, you know, <laughs> the, the flow-on benefits are around, you know, 22%. Like, we're talking almost of a quarter of Australia's economy, you know, has is, you know, affected by science. And, and you want to talk about jobs? You know, how many people do you think are employed directly by the advanced physical sciences? So directly in those fields or in industries that use those fields? Well, directly Probably. related, they reckon it's about 7% wow. of Australia's economy. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's I was, a lot. I was going to say about 2 million. You know, so, that's like 1 yeah. in 20 people. Yeah. You know, and you, that's like, you know, or who are in part of Australia's employment. I mean, it's massive. And, and, and if you just, and so it just kind of comes down to this is too much to lose. Yeah. This is too much to lose and too much to let go. And so when we start listening, especially in the lead up to the budget, and we hear a lot of talk about mm. the economy, what are we really talking about? Mm. And if you want to talk about the economy, then you better start talking about the science that underpins the economy. And what's your plan for that? Because if you're going to say, well, we need to do this because we need to make sure our, you know, we keep our economy healthy. Let's keep our science healthy. Yeah. And so I think this report, you know, it's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of economics. I had a big read through it. It's a hundred pages. <laughs> good on you. I just read the, the, the one pager. Yeah, right. They put up, which gave the highlights. The highlights. Yeah, right. but, yeah, I think it, it pretty much, uh, it, it did paint the picture though. The, the thing that a lot of people aren't talking about is what happens as a result of deinvestment? So it's not like, you know, I I shut down part of my my shop for for a couple of weeks to see what happens, and then I just opened it up again. I mean, that is not what works in in the sciences. I mean, you you take these bits out, and it will take you ten to fifteen years to build them back up. So if you're if you're talking about deinvesting in science then you realise that you are deinvesting in a 20-year period, not just for this budget round, but for the next 20 years. So then when you look at those economic benefits that you're talking about, you have to... And this is where I think the calculations become a bit hairy. It's kind of like you know, asking the Bureau of Meteorology to do a 30-day forecast. I mean, they'll, they'll give it a good crack, and you can tell how bad it's going to be for the next seven days. But beyond <laughs> that, you know, the statistics start to get out of control. And, and, and so if you look at, you know, the economic modelling of what happens when you de-invest in science over the longer period, mm. it's not just the numbers that you've been talking about there. It's far more excessive than that and your your ability to actually get it going again will be a lot you know it's like the climate change debate it's cheap to fix now it's expensive to fix later well science in industry is exactly the same it's cheap to keep it going now but it is damn expensive to you know get it back to where it needs to be later. And our prosperity now is because of that investment that's been happening over the generations. So mm. essentially what we're doing now is we're making investments for our grandkids. Yeah. yeah. No, that's if, exactly Investing right. in science today is building a future for the grandchildren, you know, and for the next generations. It really is. And mm. we are flourishing now because of that long generational strategic investment, which is why we need a long-term strategic plan for science in Australia. Mm. I think too that the numbers we're talking about are not I mean you hear a lot about this, but the numbers we're talking about for investment in science are not large relative to investment in other areas. They are really small, and the and the amount you get back from that investment is really high. So if you were to, if you were to put your money into something, I mean, if they started selling bonds for, for Australian research, for example, I would buy them because, you know, research is a good bet. And, and the industries you talk about and the number of, you know, the amount of money in those industries as a result is... 
you know, it's, it's pretty it's pretty solid. And that's just the physical science. Uh, yeah, we're not even talking about the health and medical research yeah. side of things. So when you start even factoring that into the picture, it's really quite significant. Mm. Now, let me tell you um, something. So, so let me tell you about some outcomes of science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, some proposed outcomes. Um, as you know, uh, you know, if you want to go to Mars, and for all those of you who've signed up to that Mars television show you may be aware that at the moment we're not even sure you'll live the full journey so it may be a bit of a um you know one of those shows that gets cancelled after three episodes or something (laughs) um because everyone's dead but it it is interesting knowing just how long we can last in space i mean the conditions are very different low earth orbit stuff is is pretty safe in terms of radiation and so forth but the the effects on our body of being in zero gravity are or microgravity are are really quite profound and it's interesting um nasa is about to send up a guy named scott kelly um who's who's joining um a couple of russians on um one of the Soyuz spacecraft, and and they're going up to the International Space Station for a year-long run. An entire year. An entire year. Now, this isn't the longest um, this has happened before. In fact, um, a guy named Valery Polyakov um, spent 440 days on Mir back in the day. Remember that old broken-down Tirana that was orbiting (laughs) orbiting us for a while? Um, 440 days, so well over a year. But the, the sort of biomedical science that we had back then to study you know that that particular um cosmonauts condition was nowhere near as sophisticated and we didn't have the genetic capabilities we have now to to watch and see how how we you know how we changed over time so doing it now is is important if we're thinking of sending people to mars in the next decade or so I mean, it, it has such impacts on your bone density, on your hormone, on your hormones, on your circadian rhythms. Everything's so Ex- different. Exactly. Your entire physiology. Everything changes. Now, what would be the most unbelievably lucky, super cool thing that NASA could hope for with this guy? That he is really healthy. Hmm. That he has a twin, an identical twin, that is also working for NASA that will be on the ground <laughs> during that time. No way. This guy. So has, this is like yep. the ultimate control yeah, experiment. Yep. yep, yep. <laughs> so he he has a twin, and um, his twin brother Mark, and they're they're identical. So they're not um, fraternal twins. They're what's the other term? The other term. They both came from the one egg twins. That's yeah, what good. I'm trying to think. I'm sure Dr. Cromo will be sitting at home, absolutely, you know, squealing at the the radio. Um, so. He, these guys are identical. One's going into space for a year. One's staying at home. Fantastic. So so cool. I mean, one thing that will happen if if you're you know been a long time listener of the show, folks, you'll realise that the guy in space is going to come back a little younger because of Einstein's theory of relativity. So he'll be travelling at high speed, which means his his time frame will slow down slightly. He'll be about ten milliseconds younger after a year. <laughs> I'm not sure you'll be able but to tell. But imagine the profiling you could do. You could do um, you could do genetic transcript analysis. You could look at what genes are turned on and what genes are turned off. You can look at what the effects are. And then you could do the same thing to the brother on the ground. And then yeah. you can compare and contrast what those changes are and whether you would expect them to have changed or not. It's terrific. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. And it means it means they can really pull out. I mean, you know, in, in a year... A person changes a lot. A lot of things can happen, you know, with your um, your body and, and various risk factors that you walk into a situation with. So being able to take those in, in two people that are as close to identical and, you know, people change as they age they have different experiences so you know they will be a little different but genetically they are basically the same individual i mean you've got to remember this still is an experiment of one. Oh, yeah it's still yeah. an experiment yeah. of one you know and there's still a lot of you know 
sort of conflict, um, sort of stuff around the edges that's not going to be as you're not going to be able to draw huge conclusions no. from. But in terms of the best case scenario of what you can achieve with the resources and the situation yeah, you yeah. have, having an identical twin is possibly the the best yeah. boon to the study. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. So anyway, that's that's going to be happening, and um, we'll see how that pans out. But I think uh, it will be interesting just to, you know, I'd love to stand them next to one another, you know, at the end. And I think the guy from space will probably look maybe a little taller because he won't be under the influence of, of Earth's gravity. So oh, he, can you? Oh, yeah, I don't know what the physical state of yeah. an astronaut is after they come back. Oh, they look like crap. Um, <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're a bit floppy, you know, because their, their muscle their muscle tone um, is very hard to maintain. So it's a it's a hard, it's a hard environment. So it'll be very interesting to see what um, what the two of them uh, how they compare when when this is all done. So interesting stuff. We are hoping to uh, cross to Antarctica. Is Liv giving me the uh, the signal of success? A shaking head left to right. I take that as a good to go, Liv. No. No, it's a, it's a thumbs down. In Luckily, case, we have two awesome guests in the studio. We have two awesome guests in the studio. They're uh, going to be we'll... talking to us about cognitive behavioural therapy and insomnia. Yes. And also sending things up into space. Yeah, and monitoring the Earth's, um, how wet the soil is, which is an important um, important measurement to make. Uh, we are here in Triple R land, and it is one of those days where we think the technology might be working for us. We're hoping to uh, go directly to... Go directly to Antarctica to speak to Beth Healy. Beth, are you there? Hello, Beth. Can you hear Hi. us? Hello. How are you, Beth? Uh, yeah, I can hear you well. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Hello. <laughs> now, now you're down at down at um, Concordia Base. Tell us a bit about that. I, I don't think many Australians here, in particular, will be aware of this because it's not one of our bases. We've had a few Australians pop by during the summer from the Casey base um, at the coast. Um, so we're quite we were on the Antarctic Plateau, um, which is like Dame Charlie. So mm-hmm. we're sort of between, between the coast and the South Pole, really, um, about 1,300 kilometres from the coast. Um, we're a French-Italian French base, um, but I'm here working for um, the European Space Agency um, because... Now, Beth, tell us a bit about that because my understanding is the reason you're there is because this base is so close to being in space, it's not funny because of its isolation, its extreme temperatures. You're not going to see anyone for 60 days or, or 90 days other than the people that are there. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's, why, that's why I'm down here and why we're doing the research here. Um, so they've chosen Concordia for a number of reasons. Um, we're at altitude um, on the plateau, so we're about 3,200 metres. Um, so chronic hypoxia, which is similar to that that they experience on stations. Um, we're also very isolated, as you mentioned. So um, we're on our own as a skeleton crew of 13 for nine months. Um, and for five of those months, it's not possible to get any planes in because of the low temperatures that we experience. Um, also, we're... Um, approaching a period of darkness, so for about three months we'll have um, night time for the whole whole time, and then for periods up to that we'll have um, longer periods of night as well. 
Um, so those are sort of the main reasons, and also exposure um, with cold temperatures outside. Mm. Now, you're, so you're, a, you're a medical doctor by training, so I can imagine everyone on the base would want to be your best friend. But what, what sort of things <laughs> do you keep track of down there? Because as you say, those, those conditions, especially um, no sunlight for three months and the, the extreme isolation of, you know, no, I hate to use the word rescue, but no one coming down there for, for five months. Um, what, what sort of things do you have to keep track of and what sort of experiments are you doing? Okay, um, well, I mean, because of the isolation, there's actually two doctors here. So um, there's another doctor whose main role is the, as the clinical doctor and then I'm here mainly as the ESA researcher. But um, because of our isolation, we're unique in sort of the position of having two doctors down here. Um, so in terms of the experiments we're doing, um, we're doing one which is sort of um, a video diary. So the crew every week are sort of talking to um, a microphone and camera on a computer, um, which is analysing uh, their mood, and and that's something which we're hoping to use during spaceflight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sort of doing psychological questionnaires. Um, We've got um, a large study running in conjunction with NASA at the moment um, where we're wearing watches which are looking at our sleep patterns, our activity on base, who we're interacting with, um, and just our general movements. So whether we're sort of spending more time in social areas or sort of re- re- um, going into our bedrooms, things that, like that. Or, that sounds a bit big, big brotherish, Beth. <laughs> it, it is rather, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it is getting a bit... <laughs> So you, you, there's absolutely no hanky-panky going on down in that base then, is there? Because okay, well, <laughs> we would certainly know about it if there was. <laughs> <laughs> and what are some of the, um, the, the other health um, experiments that are running? Uh, so another one which is quite interesting um, is looking at the effects of artificial lighting eyes. So that's quite relevant for people sort of working in factories and um, so it has quite a lot of applications. Um, so it's looking at um, specifically the people reflex and how that's affected over time with having sort of the low light levels and just using artificial light. Because you, um, you, you'd, be, at, you'd be going into that sorry? winter period now, would you? It's, it's autumn time going into... Yeah. What's the light dark at the moment? So, um, well, I mean, I arrived in November, which was 24-hour daylight. Um, and then about a month ago, we saw our first sunset. And since then, it's dramatically getting a lot um, darker. So I would say um, we're probably getting about nine hours of light during the day at the moment, but it's decreasing by about half an hour every day at the moment. So we're looking sort of two weeks' time, two or three weeks' time, that we're going to be in complete darkness. Mm. Beth, now, as you probably are well aware, there's been quite a bit of solar activity lately. Has the, um, the southern aurora there been extraordinary where you are? Or is it too cloudy? Um, we've, not quite, we've not quite had it yet because um, although it's getting dark, um, we don't get the complete darkness mm-hmm. yet until sort of in three weeks. So even at night time, it's still more dusky than absolute darkness. Um, so unfortunately, we're not getting it. We're, we're seeing a few stars, but that's about that's about it at the moment. But in a few weeks, hopefully, yes, we're we're really looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, the big story. And in previous years, it's been fantastic. So fingers crossed. And how many people are on Concordia at the moment? Uh, so there's 13 for the overwinter period, um, and it's about a half and half mix between scientists and technical. 
I remember reading about one of the Australian bases now saying that because of the, the low number of people, everyone had to have dual skills. And so, like, the IT guy had to retrain as the anaesthetist in case there was an emergency. Is that the case where people are, are, are have to take on multiple roles outside their discipline to make sure you've got everything you need in that team of 13 people to get you through those five months? Yes, absolutely. And it's been quite fun learning learning different things. So we're all part of the fire team. Um, and as you mentioned, yes, everyone's learned to scrub into sort of um, a theatre situation and everybody has a role in case um, we do need to do any operations or anything similar. Um, other people have been learning how to sort of refuel the planes which come in and um, taking meteor data for that and, and learning about um, the communications with the air. What's your air top new skill? Is probably doing the fire team. I had a lot of fun doing that and learning how to use use all of the equipment, equipment yeah. for that. But also cooking and stuff like that. So we all chip in with everything. So it's quite fun. Now, Beth, I, I need a, a completely honest answer on this question. Is there a copy of uh, John Carpenter's The Thing down there? And have you guys watched it? <laughs> yes and yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty. Yeah. That's fantastic. I think it was my first week of being down here. They showed it me. That, that is obscene that they did that to you. Now, um, you, you must um, give us a, a sort of description of, the, of how big the base is there because when you've only got 13 people, I can imagine you could fit them into a fairly small space, but for nine months, sooner or later, you're going to have to get away from these people, I assume. How, how big is the facility? Um, well, it's arranged we have two towers here. So the one tower is a noisy tower and the other tower is sort of a quiet tower. Um, and we sleep in the quiet tower and then... Sort of, we have the gym and the new room and everything, and the noisy one. Um, it's quite large um, considering the amount of people because during the summer we have um, about 80 to 100 people living here. All right. um, although we have extra bedrooms sort of outside um, in what we call the summer camp. So, so it's accommodated to hold a lot more. But um, yeah, I'm, I mean, after a few months, it does get a, it does get a bit similar. Sort of mm. <laughs> walking up the same same staircase and everything. Um, and we're also sharing rooms during the summer, but now, now we all have our own, which is nice. So. Now, now, you have a bit of a history of going to these extreme environments and working on these sorts of things. How did you get involved in this sort of work? Because it doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that people would normally be volunteering for, but looking at your background, it seems as though you have tried to find the most remote and, and uh, cold and inhospitable places on the earth for quite a while. I guess it all just comes from a love of skiing, um, and then I've gradually sort of got to more and more extreme places, but <laughs> it's really by accident that I've ended up in these, these places. <laughs> um, Where else but, have you but, been? Uh, so, well, I've been, um, so mainly I used to work on sort of a support um, support team for adventure races, um, and doing that through, I've been to the North Pole. Um, I work in Greenland regularly for the last three seasons. Um, up in Siberia, we did a big race on like, Lake Baikal. Um, and then when I was a bit younger, I went to Svalbard. So, wow. so yeah, I'm always to end up in um, snowy places. Yeah. <laughs> but Antarctica was, was a big one for me, so I'm, I'm glad to get back here. So, <laughs> so to myself. Beth, what's the, um, what's the plan moving forward? I mean, you, you've had so much experience with, with this, these sorts of environments. You're part of the European Space Agency. Is that, is that your goal, to actually you know, be on one of those missions at some stage, uh, given you've pretty much explored every corner of this planet? What, what's next? <laughs> oh, I mean, I wouldn't say no, but uh, 
Um, I think I think probably this is as extreme as I want to get. I think, um, but I wish wish everyone luck on the uh, the space station. Mm. In fact, we we are going to have calls in, in a few weeks, which will be quite fun. Mm. I guess there's not enough skiing in space. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, but we'll, we'll see. Beth, um, thanks so much for talking to us. We know um, it is difficult to make these connections um, down to some of the bases in Antarctica, and we've spoken to a couple this year. And it's great to hear about the fact that the European Space Agency is doing this work down there and using these these environments to learn more about space. So we hope you have fun and that you survive the next four or so months. And um, we might try and catch up with you again at some stage when you're um, back on slightly warmer land. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Great. Great talking to you, Beth. That was um, Dr. Beth Healy. She's from the European Space Agency, based down at Concordia Station, um, which, if you're wondering where that is in Antarctica, I think you, you sort of draw a line halfway between WA and South Australia and then head south, and you'll hit <laughs> a fair way south, and you'll hit it. Um, I love that their pre-mission training was called the Flight of the Concordians. <laughs> I have to say, though, I'm a little dubious about these monitoring watches, which tell you know tell people where, where the person's going, being their activities, absolutely everything about their life non-stop the Think entire time. Think about how time. much data that's generating. I mean, even just from 13 people, like for every day, for, for an entire season, I mean, and, and combine that with all the, the blood samples and the, the mood samples and the personality testing and the... I mean, yeah. there is just an incredibly rich data set there that we can learn so much about how humans respond to being in these quite extreme environments, yeah. psychologically extreme, physically extreme... I mean, it's, there's no other place on Earth where you could possibly um, do do that except for Antarctica. It's super cool stuff. I think we should try and broadcast one of the shows from down there. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think I think a live broadcast from Antarctica yeah. would be we'll, very appropriate. We'll talk to CSIRO or someone. They should be able to set it up. <laughs> We are joined in the studio now, though, by Dr. Joe Abbott. She's a research fellow, health psychologist, and acting deputy director at the National E-Therapy Centre at Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome to the studio, Joe. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me on your show. Look, it's great to get you in on the topic you're working on because I think, uh, well, Christopher and I are both parents. We appreciate uh, the lack of sleep and, and what that can mean to people, but I, I suspect a lot of people suffer from insomnia and, and these issues. You're coming at this from a very different angle, though. This is the, yes. the use of the web and the use of online resources. Tell us a bit about the approach to dealing with things like insomnia and other health issues from, from that perspective. Sure. Okay, so there's a lot of work that we do as psychologists with people to help them overcome um, things like anxiety, stress, Mm. sleeping difficulties, where they need to go away and and learn things themselves, like practice relaxation, um, learn to gradually face their fears. So there's a lot that people can do largely on their own kind of like a self-help book in a way Mm. Uh, but we can put that material on the internet and um, give different levels of support to people and uh, we find that um, a lot of some of the work that we do in face-to-face therapy transfers well online and helps get treatment out to people who we've who there's just such a small proportion of people with mental health difficulties that are Mm. accessing face-to-face 
support. Services, yeah. Because people yeah. do go to Dr. Google, don't they? They do, yeah. And, and when you say transfer, I mean, are we talking about a, you know, like a video chat session with, with a clinician or are we talking about them just reading something or watching a video? What What is that transference that compares to a face-to-face? Sure. Well, there's lots of different types of internet tr- treatment. Uh, so... Well, video therapy is is one type where it's literally just doing therapy face-to-face but via video. Mm. Uh, But then there's different types of... um, You you do something over a web, like the internet, um, like reading and using interactive materials, Mm -hmm. videos, audio files, um, where you're largely learning things on your own. Um, So it might be educational or it might be about... Uh, how to change thoughts and behaviours that can help you feel better. Uh, And then there's other more additional things like um, online support groups, mobile apps. There's a whole range of things. And also virtual reality where people can um, be immersed in virtual-like environments to help them overcome fears or or just feel like they're in a particular space but rather than actually being in that real space so there's a real exciting range of ways we can uh, deliver treatment online Hmm. and this sort of uh i I guess it's called cognitive behavioral therapy is that right that's right that's the technical term yeah i I know because i've had it (laughs) i've been on the receiving end and it is it is very very effective because it does as far as I can tell, and you, I mean, you, you know the, the science behind this, but it seems to change your associations. So, you know, I associate, you know, bad feelings with this particular thing or, you know, whether it be spiders or public speaking or, <laughs> or anything else. Yeah. Um, and it, change, it seems to change the way you react. Is, yeah. is that how it's supposed to work? Yeah, it's about uh, looking at our thoughts and our behaviours and, um, and looking at what, Uh, say for example thought patterns are unhelpful unrealistic and helping make them more realistic now this is not saying um, you have to be really positive but we can uh, say someone has depression they can um, get caught up in um, thinking uh, quite negatively and pessimistically and that's that's hard to to change but we're not like trying to um, dismiss that we're just Mm. trying to help them gradually um, feel more Real, re, more realistic rather than saying you know I'm never going to feel better we, we can help them um, to um, think about ways they might actually be able to start to feel a bit better Do you have a good feel for which um, groups of people are particularly responsive or particularly benefit from these kinds of deliveries of health services like are there, are there groups of people who might be traditionally more hesitant to go and see someone in real life but not real life in face to face but happy to engage virtually Yeah sure well, there's certain, certainly people need to feel comfortable using the computer and the internet uh, but we do find that um, there, there is still a fair bit of stigma attached to mental health um, mm. and and so pe- there is a reluctance for people to go and see someone face to face but also um, a lack of awareness of other options um, and what, you know even the options of face to face treatment so for people people that um, want to largely um, do things themselves to feel better and don't feel comfortable talking about their health, mental health to someone, 
internet-based treatment can be really mm. good, even a first step, and then that might help them then feel comfortable to go and see someone face-to-face. Mm. I think this is one of the areas, too, where you know, I quite happily and quite proudly you know, state that I have you know, seen a psychologist in the last five years, and it was a transformative um, experience for me. Okay. Uh, you know, this is something that was very important, and I think more people need to be open about that, that, that this is occurring, and you wouldn't hesitate if someone saw a cast on your leg and saying, yeah, I broke my leg being a fool. Um, but, you know, mental health issues are are considered differently in our society. I mean, you know, maybe 50 years from now we'll look back ashamed that we even used a different term, mental health, rather than just health. But at the moment... I can see where this would be something very valuable. In terms of, you know, we have a whole generation now, and, you know, Dr. Crystal was just talking to us during the break about her date night and how all these other people on dates were were just sitting there on their phones, presumably, <laughs> presumably texting the person that was sitting there. I mean, there. how many times have you been in a restaurant and you look over and there's two people sitting there with their wine and their food, but they're both on their, their phones? Yeah. And, and, I mean, we have a whole, gener- not, not just young generation, but, you know, a, a new generation of, of um, I guess online interaction that is investing every element of our lives. That's right. Um, it it stems to reason we can use that very effectively. Are you gearing things towards you know the tablet, the phone, as opposed to the yeah. traditional computer? Absolutely. I mean, we're still heading in that direction. But what this field, these people in my area are doing, are really we're really realising that um, you know we know that um, a longer treatment program will be helpful if people use it Mm. Um, but we have to look at ways to make people uh, make treatments more engaging and accessible and people are using their phones and that's what will um, help them stop and actually do something for their for their health so um, we're we're looking at ways to make treatment even more brief and um, short and sharp and um, engaging Mm. ways to um, incorporate monitoring and um, gaming you can like add gaming elements to mobile apps. So in your area of research in insomnia, I mean, how how much of a problem is insomnia, you know, generally? I mean, you know, you can't sleep, but when does it become, you know, a a critical mental health issue? Sure. Well, there's about um, one in three people have difficulty sleeping, um, but it's about 3% of Australians that have uh, more longer-term difficulties that... That, that really cause them distress and difficulty doing their daily activities. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's when um, where the, the sleep difficulties really start to have an impact on our ability to do the things we want to do in our days and, and causes um, quite quite a bit of distress. And this is distress both about um, worrying about sleeping the next night as well as worrying about how you're going to function the next mm. day. Mm. And how, how do you, I mean, just quickly, because we're going we're to um, go to a break, but the uh, how does the online system work in terms of, of insomniacs, I mean, uh, they're lying there awake, and then they quickly grab my phone. And they, you know, how does how does that interplay work? Sure. Well, we actually encourage them to use the strategies during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually encourage them to limit use of technology in bed. Uh, the the bright lights affecting uh, mm. the. We're trying to train the the body clock, the yep. body's clock that times it controls how sleepy and alert we feel and um so if you've got bright light it's affecting the brain's ability to know that we should be feeling sleepy uh so we teach people um we we help people um 
reset their body clock so they feel more, more sleepy when they need to go to sleep, more alert when they need to get up. And we help them um, connect the view the bedroom as a place of sleeping soundly rather than, um, you know, they, they wake up in the, the night and they lie in bed tossing and turning and they stay in bed. We get them to get out of bed so that they're not reinforcing that connection with the bedroom and... Mm. and um, not being able to sleep. Look, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and and I think everyone has had sleeping problems at some stage in their life. I suspect everyone goes through it at some stage, and some people get stuck in it for a longer period. So, all of this stuff is is great, and seeing it come online in this different different form, even as you say, if it gets them in the door later, you know, seeing a professional face to face down the track, um, I think it's it's fabulous to to use all of these technologies to to their greatest effect. So, good work, Joe, and uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Dr. Joe Abbott is a research fellow and health psychologist and acting deputy director of the National E-Therapy Centre at Swinburne University of Technology. Now, we are joined in the studio uh, by Dr. Christoph Rudiger, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Civil Engineering at Monash University. Welcome, Christoph. Hello. Thanks for having me. Now, I remember a couple of years ago uh, when there were the, the, all the flooding up in Brisbane, I said there was a term that you heard that hadn't come up before, which is somebody get me a hydrologist. Is, your background's hydrology and, and that area of civil engineering. So water and, and the land? Yeah, basically we are looking into how much water is in the land just for water resource purposes, water availability for plant growth and flooding for that case as well. Because mm. I guess people don't normally think about how much water is in the land. We think about how much water is yeah. in the ocean or in the lakes or in the streams, but yeah. a lot of water our resources are, are in the ground. Yeah. So now you're, you're working on a very interesting project with, that involves some group called NASA, never heard of them, um, with one of the satellites that's now up and, and you were explaining to me just beforehand that it's, it's now started um, its activity phase, so they've got it uh, running. Tell us a bit about that satellite and what it's there to do. So the satellite was launched on the 31st of January and then they had a bit of a spin-up process that's called the commissioning phase. Mm-hmm. So in that they test the satellite, orient it, put it in the right orbit and so on and so forth. And uh, now they've started spinning it around its axis so it can scan a larger area of, this, of the surface. Mm-hmm. And it operates in, in the microwave spectrum, so it actively and passively. That okay. means it measures the whatever comes up from the surface, but it also sends down a signal and looks at okay. what's reflected. Okay. Now, what, what sort of things... Uh, I mean, obviously, hydrology is, as you say, you know, it's, it's looking at the amount of water in the soil. Is, is this like a, looking at a sort of global map of, of soil moisture? Is that, is that the goal here? Yeah, it's um, the goal of the satellite is really threefold. One is uh, water resources, so we're mapping the soil moisture content mm-hmm. globally on a three-day basis, but also freeze-thaw conditions because that influences how much uh, carbon can be captured by the surface or even released. I mean, you go into the tundra and northern mm. Mm. And that's very important to understand how it works. Right. Now, give us an idea of these soil moisture conditions because, I, I, you know, as, as Dr. Crystal said earlier, we sort of have this very good image of water in the lake or in the ocean. But how much water can be contained, I guess, by volume in, in soil or in, in desert sand? Or, you know, how much is, is in there? Uh, well, that's quite variable, especially in the desert. We've had some campaigns out there. Um, during the summer, there's hardly anything. And mm-hmm. then you've got, for sand, 25% of the pore space can be filled with, bio, with wow. water and the sand. In, in clays, it's much more. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but the available water is then in the order of 20% of the volume can be filled with available water. Hmm. So. And, and do, we, do we know much about this uh, across the globe? I mean, it, it seems something that you'd, you'd expect we already should have had a look at. Do we just not have good maps of, of soil moisture content? Well, the problem was the technology. Um, really with SMAP, for example, it's been difficult to put a a satellite dish up into space that was big enough to give us the the accuracy. Right. The smaller the satellite dish, the, the lower the accuracy. So now we've managed that. So how big is this satellite? Uh, the dish is six meters, so it works like an umbrella. Yep. We shot up, uh, folded together to 30, 40 centimeters, and then once it was up, uh, was it three, four weeks ago? They they unfolded the umbrella, and now it's working. What a big moment when it pops open! You just like when, when it pops open. <laughs> when it, but pops most open, importantly, yeah. yeah, yeah. I can imagine everyone holding their breath as they're, they're just like trying to deploy this. Yeah, you, you, must, you must meet some of these people in bars, and they talk about their little cube sets, and you go. Huh. So, so we've, so we've got a satellite up there. It's all popped out. It, it's got the microwaves, you know, measurements going, and we're going to find out how much moisture is in our soil. Why? Well, the important thing is, for example, for weather forecasting, uh, the water in the soil regulates how much energy is released, how much energy is stored in the soil. And the more water you have in the soil, the more it goes into the atmosphere, cloud formation. Mm. And uh, the BOM will have three to six hour delay of the of the data coming through so they can use that in the weather and climate forecasts. Oh, so so almost, in re- almost in real time. Like you've only got a few hours delay on that information. Yeah, for us, three to six hours is called wow. near real time. Yeah. Right, so. yeah. I mean, that sounds extraordinary. So, I mean, because I was just thinking in terms of um, a, a typical day, there must be quite big differences between the night cycle and the day cycle, especially if it's a hot, non-cloudy day in terms of the way in which that water, uh, amount of water in the soil changes over, over that period. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it's when you look at the very skin, then you, yeah, you have can have quite uh, mm. significant uh, differences, but... SMAP, for example, sees the top five centimeters or so, yep, though. So yep. there's not that much day nighttime variability if you don't have a rain event coming through. Okay. So presumably, though, given, given it is close to the surface that you're looking at, as you say, that, that information for forecasting has got to be pretty important because it does affect everything above it at that point. Yeah, really, and that's why a lot of countries spend a lot of money on it. So. Yeah. Now, I, want, I wanted to talk about the, the resolution of these things. It's it's a damn big planet. Um, how you know, one little one, well, quite big set like it actually, but but how how fine is the detail of these maps when you start looking at the surface? Are we are we talking about um, hundreds of kilometers, or is it better than that? So the final SMAP project, uh, product will be in the order... There'll be different products, three or nine kilometers, mm-hmm. which is enough for weather forecasting. Yeah. And, and, oh. and what about the applications in agriculture? For that, we're working on disaggregation studies, so using other satellite data to downscale the data to much higher resolution. Also, the Europeans have launched last year in April a satellite that will give us 250 meters, but at a different time scale. Wow, down to a resolution of 250 meters. Yep. Hmm. It's a, it feels like a lot, a lot, but when you actually when you're up there and you're looking down, I mean, if you if you do the old Google Earth and zoom out and then start thinking about how big this is, it's actually pretty, pretty small. Do do you um, can you do sort of increased resolution maps around cities and so forth? Because I can imagine that's where the bureau would be particularly interested in in that. Or is it just that you can't see the the moisture? You know, we concrete the crap out of everything. I mean, what what do you see when you look at the cities? Yeah, we don't look at cities at mm, all right. in that regard because, as you said. The concrete, we can't see through the concrete, mm. and there's 
also too much radio interference. Okay. So radio frequency, mobile phones and stuff like that, they do interfere with our signals a bit. And in cities, it's even worse. Yeah. So you'd need some pretty sturdy algorithms to kind of uh, account for that. Um, we create um, what's called RFI maps, uh, radio frequency interference maps. So we can we know um, what level of interference there's happening. Uh, we have in the areas and, and what's the sort of sunset clause of, of the project because usually these these sort of satellite scenarios will, will run for a year they'll collect a certain amount of data people will examine that um, how long is this project going to go for so the satellite is um, three years for sure five years is hopeful and it's got fuel for a hundred years <laughs> fuel for a hundred years <laughs> just is, in case is that plutonium <laughs> no it's just uh, it's 200 uh, kilograms of solids and a bit of liquids right, right. To, just to just to adjust orbital, orbit. orbital stabilization yeah. yeah look it's super cool stuff and um i have to say you know he- hearing about these sorts of measurements on that scale and, and just how how fine that de- i mean it sounds large but that that is fine detail on a planet the size of earth and it really is cool so you can map it farm by farm it's incredible yeah yeah, yeah. and um presumably you'll have a whole lot of people after this data as it as it comes out not not just the meteorologists but presumably others as well yeah, I mean, here in Victoria, we're working with uh, what used to be DEPI, so Department of Primary Industries, mm-hmm. uh, looking into developing applications for farmers so that they can mm-hmm. uh, look into their irrigation practices. Yeah, no, I can, I can imagine that would really lead towards great optimization, especially in some of the larger farms, which are well bigger than, than well, the size of these pixels. Water is an important resource. It certainly is. Dr. Christoph Rudiger, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, great talking to you, and, um, and good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks a lot. So uh, that was Dr. Christoph Rudiger, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Civil Engineering at Monash University and working with NASA on these amazing images of the Earth's surface and uh, looking at how water in- impacts climate. So we've done uh, the European Space Agency, we've done NASA. Sorry, China, we'll get to you um, some, somewhere somehow. Uh, we're going to have to go, Dr. Crystal. Uh, Our time th- is almost up. I think today's been a fantastic example of how space programs can make a contribution to all kinds of aspects yeah. of life. Yeah, and, and also a great example of how having someone technical, technically savvy like live in the studio is very important because she managed to get us the interview with Concordia going with about... 15 seconds to spare. How, how many days can you say you spoke live to Antarctica? It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Um, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It Now, though, folks, because I can see uh, Matt Stedman over there waving at me, and Cam is cooking up a storm, and you probably heard his voice go past the studio. His dulcet tones go right through the insulation of the door. Not much we can do about that. But uh, we have enjoyed talking to you again today about science, and we will do so again next week. It is our very great pleasure. Remember, science is everywhere. And until next week, um, try and notice the signs around you because, as Dr. Crystal said earlier, there's plenty of it. Thanks for listening. You're listening to 3RRR. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.